You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. I love New Jersey. I love rock and roll. My guest is from New Jersey, and he's great at rock and roll. And I just <laughs> found out he used to live in Los Angeles, and I want to find out why he hated it, because I got tired of it. And my guest, one of the founders and a guitarist from Skid Row, Dave Sabo. What's up, Dave? How are you? Please call me Snake. Whenever everybody calls me Dave, I feel like I did something wrong, like when my mom used to call me David when I was a kid. Well, it's funny. I, I was because I sit there, you know, when I, I look up, you know, it's Snake, and then you know, it says the Snake, and it's so so. Is it Mister Snake? I mean, what do you prefer, Snake, the Snake? What do you like? It's just Snake. It's been that way since I was twelve years old. Now, how did you get that nickname? Like, my nickname has been Coop, but my last name's Cooper. But Snake, right. tell me, tell me. I, I know you probably told the story a thousand times, but tell me. Well, when, when I was younger, you know, you used to, you used, during the summertime, you'd go up and play basketball with a group of guys or softball or whatever, and you have shirts and skins. So I was around 12, 13 years old, and I was skins one day. And John Bon Jovi noticed that I had one hair growing out of my chest that was ridiculously long and squirrely. And he's like, that's gross. Get rid of that. I'm like, no, man, I'm becoming a man. Like, I'm growing up. And he's like, it looks like a snake. It's disgusting. And I'm like, too bad. And so from that point on, he just kept calling me snake. See, that's good. That's see, that's all you need. You need a good story. I want to talk about your career, but I want to talk about the uh, the new guitar the, the artist collection from Kramer, they just came out with the, the Snake Sable Beretta. Tell me about that and tell me what it means to be an artist and have a guitar named after him in such a great group of people. It's beyond humbling. And the gratitude I have towards the people at Kramer and, and uh, Gibson uh, is, is immeasurable. I... I was a part of the Kramer family going back to 1985. Uh, originally, Kramer was in Neptune, New Jersey, and they that's kind of like our backyard. And I was working at uh, Garden State Music in Thomas River, which is where I met Rachel. We became fast friends and started writing songs together, and that was the impetus for putting Skid Row together. Uh, in this, At the same time, the guys in Bon Jovi were working with Kramer. Uh, so they were kind enough to bring us along and introduce us uh, to Dennis Berardi, who was the owner, and uh, a bunch of the uh, people who worked there uh, on the lines and the luthiers. And, and they just made great guitars. Like I used to play some of Richie Sambora's, and they were just great. And uh, they offered to, like, help us out. And, you know, you need guitars, we'll supply you with guitars. And we were like, this is unbelievable because we're, you know, we're penniless. We're just a bunch of broke kids, uh, you know, putting a band together in a garage. And so we started playing out more and more and, and garnering a, an audience and a following in the tri-state area. And they just continued to support us. Uh, and we used those guitars on all of our records and tours up until the company started declining. And it was really heartbreaking uh, for that to happen because they were they were at one point the number one guitar company in the world. Um, and for whatever reason, people's tastes change and stuff, but they were just always so kind to us, and that was never forgotten. So when Gibson purchased the rights to Kramer, and started uh, rebranding it. I was excited, I, 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 and I had no involvement with it uh, when it, it came to be. Uh, I was just excited because I was such a fan, and they had always been so good to us. And then a person who works at Gibson, who works in like the uh, artist relations uh, video department, stuff like that. His name is Todd Harapiak. Uh, he used to be an intern for me at McGee Entertainment uh, in my management office in Los Angeles. Uh, and he was always a great guy. I loved him. And when he got done interning with McGee, he went on and eventually landed at Gibson. 
So I saw online Dave Rude from Tesla, who plays Epiphones, talking about the Epiphone that he plays and thanking Todd. And I'm like, I wonder if that's the same Todd that used to work with me. So I just hit him up. I'm like, is this is this you? Are you working with Gibson? And he immediately gets back to me and goes, yes, uh, I am. And I want to do a signature model of your snake guitar. And I'm like, ah, whatever, <laughs> shut up. Um, and he was serious. And he was relentless. So when I was down in Nashville, when we were working on uh, our new record, he set it up where uh, Scotty and I could go over and, and meet the people at the factory. And uh, meeting uh, the second in command, the CMO, Cesar as well as uh, the head of a uh, uh, pickup construction, if you will, uh, Jim DeCola, uh, and Al Jongo, who does uh, predominantly Epiphone and Kramer. And we got along amazingly. Like, we had all known each other forever. And it was just great to see that Gibson was a guitar company again. Like they weren't attempting to be an electronics company. They weren't filing chapter 11 anymore. You know, it was like back to being Gibson, the, the iconic brand that we love, that we all love and has played such an integral part in the history of music, uh, in the history of rock and roll. Um, such a vital part. And so, you know, a few years back when, when it looked like Gibson was going under, we were heartbroken. I have Gibsons, I have Fenders, I have Kramers, I have ESPs, I have, you know, uh, uh, Gretches and, and so on and so forth, Hackstroms, Ovations, Yamahas. Uh, but Gibson was always a part of my arsenal. I was never endorsed by them. Uh, I, I never even really had a relationship with them. But just the idea that they were on the verge of bankruptcy was heartbreaking. Like, how does the world of music and rock and roll exist without Gibson? It just doesn't. Uh, and so we were so happy to see this new team come in and take over and revitalize and reinvent and get them back to what they do, which is build guitars. And you could sense that, man. From the moment we walked in there, you could sense the enthusiasm amongst everybody uh, from the top on down. And they, the emphasis was just on the quality, Gibson quality, man. The Les Paul, the, you know, the Thunderbirds, the Flying Vs, the Explorers. It's just everything. Uh, the ES series, uh, their Epiphone series. And then, of course, now comes Kramer. So, again, I hit it off so well. And we took like a three-hour tour, <laughs> a three-hour <laughs> tour uh, of the factory. And it was so impressive because you talk to the people on the different lines. And they're genuinely excited to be a part of this renaissance of an iconic brand. And it just, the enthusiasm was infectious. And I got really excited, as did Scotty. And so we, we, were, we were talking, uh, and they brought up the snake guitar thing. And I thought, there's no way. Right. Yeah, there's just no way. Like, this is, I've never had a signature guitar. Uh, that guitar had been uh, sort of, retired since the early mid nineties. Um, and it took Todd being, uh, irrepressible about it to push it through. And it became a reality. And I'm still awestruck that it actually happened. And, I'm a little kid again, because when I had that guitar initially built, I was still a kid. I was an innocent, broke kid 
with these grand dreams uh, of having a successful rock band and hopefully touring the world and making records and writing songs that hopefully touched people's lives. And, you know, all that happened. And uh, that guitar played a big role in, in our infancy uh, and, and different uh, goals that we attained. And so to have that brought back and rebirthed, so to speak, um, is just such an honor. And it plays amazing, and it sounds great, and it looks killer. And I'm so proud that to be involved with it and to be involved with Kramer overall uh, in hopefully helping in some way uh, bring it to the forefront again and, and to be involved with everybody at the company, at Gibson, and they've just been phenomenal. They've treated me like... Like they've known me forever, like a part of the family. And that's rare these days. And they're doing it for the love of it, man. They really are. They're doing it for the love of it. For the history, uh, for the quality, for to hear people play music on their instruments. And I love that. Now, you said when they built it, the original Snake, years ago... What goes into building guitar for you? Did you have input or did you, I mean, how does that work when, you know, this is, you said is a, like the one they stopped using in the mid nineties. How did, how did they build a guitar for you? Did they talk to you and get your personality or, or what is it like? It all started at the music store, uh, Garden State Music. We used to build custom guitars in the back of the store. There was the manager of the store who was also a luthier. His name was Paul Unker just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. Uh, he's actually the guy who hired me to work in the music store, thankfully, because I couldn't get a job in Sarahville, New Jersey, so I had to travel 80 miles to get a gig. <laughs> so uh, I asked him if we could put something together, and I had the idea for the for the graphic, and it, him and – he and, and Rachel's older brother – knew of a guy that was a great air spray artist. So they suggested this guy, Dennis Klein, come up with the artwork. So I told him what my idea was for the artwork. I want to have this crazy-ass snake coming out of a, a tombstone, out of a grave. And that was really it. It was very general. So he drew something up, did a little bit here and there, and I loved what I saw. And uh, I said, go after it. So I think that at the time it was a Warmoth body or a Chandler body. I'm not quite sure. Uh, and then it was a Warmoth neck. And we put it together uh, at the time with an EMG. Uh, and I believe the I believe it was like a standard tailpiece at that time. And Dennis painted this amazing piece of art. And so we put it together back in the in the music store. And with the little guitar company that was back there was called Custom Dreams Guitars. Uh, and it was our own little business, own, their own little business. And so when I got involved with Kramer, I was like, I've got this guitar, but it really needs, it needs some work. And I don't know what to do. And we're working with you guys now. So what can we do here? And so they immediately put on one of their one of their reverse headstock necks, uh, Kramer necks, and, and put in at the time uh, a Seymour Duncan uh, JB, and put on a uh, Black Floyd Rose on it, and just a single humbucker, uh, uh, flat flatter frets, uh, a, a satin almost uh, unfinished uh, neck, and it was. They set it up for me. Uh, turns out that the guy who who put it together and set it up for me, we ended up stealing. Uh, his name was Chris Hofschneider, affectionately referred to as Lumpy, and we uh, we stole him. He was a Jersey boy as well. We stole him from Kramer, and he became uh, our our guitar guy, uh, Scotty's guitar tech and overall guitar builder and guitar taker carer. Uh, I should say caretaker and. Uh, 
just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And uh, but the guitar itself was phenomenal. And I played it all over the you know the debut album, Slave to the Grind, and played it on those tours. And uh, it holds a special place in my heart. So when we came time to do the signature series, I brought my original one in. They actually got in touch with Dennis Klein to do the artwork again, uh, uh, you know, to, for the prototype. And uh, they did everything to spec. The only thing that they they did that was, wasn't exactly the same, but it, it was, for me, it was better, was they used the Beretta body. I was fine with that. So it's a little bit different than the original, but everything else, like the neck and everything like that, is to spec. Uh, and it's a black Floyd Rose, but the only thing that this guitar has on it that wasn't available back then is uh, my friend Adam Reaver has a company called Fu Tone, and they make a thing called a D-Tuna, and it attaches to the uh, to the bridge underneath the low E string, and with a flick, it drops it to drop D, which is good for me because we'll open up with Slave to the Grind, and it's drop D. And then we'll go on to like a song like Making a Mess and that's standard tuning. And all I got to do is flick the knob up and it's back to standard tuning. Now, what got you into music? Because I know you, I read you were a good baseball player, too. But, yeah. Uh, but what, what, yeah. what, 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 you know, because we all, I mean, we're the same age. And I, I talked to Rachel about this, how there was a certain thing about, you know, getting an album and looking at it and hearing it. And you know, I had an older brother who would play, you know, Steely Dan in Chicago and some other stuff. And, and I remember being in high school and seeing Def Leppard with the Scorpions and Ted Nugent. And I got that first album, On Through the Night. But yep. I knew I couldn't play. I suck at instruments. What got right. you into music? And, you know, because baseball and music are so different, but they're so alike. Because as you're talking about the singer guitar, I was thinking about the old baseball gloves that had the autograph on it. Yep. Well, I loved sports. I was a I was a full blown jock growing up. I played baseball and basketball. Uh, I played better at baseball. Uh, but I, as Rachel, we grew up in a. We were the youngest of the of the siblings, and just like Rachel, there was a lot of music being played in my household growing up. Uh, my mother was a huge fan of music. I have four older brothers who all huge music fans so we had music blasting throughout my house every day literally whether it be elvis or the beach boys uh 50s doo-wop motown uh you know 60s soul uh phil specter records uh stacks records uh to you know the first black sabbath album and spooky tooth and humble pie and uh, 10 years after and, and it just keeps going on and on so I, without even knowing it I was getting a, uh, an incredible education in music history uh, at least rock and roll history and it stuck with me uh, I was always a, a huge fan and then on December 16, 1977 I went to Madison Square Garden and I saw Kiss on their Alive 2 tour I was 13 years old and I walked out of that show an absolutely changed human being. Uh, I knew that I needed to do music for a living. In what capacity, I, I, I didn't know. I just knew that I had to. Um, I had to be involved in music. It took me about a year to figure out how that was going to shape and take form. What happened was, was one of my older brothers had purchased a guitar, an acoustic guitar through the Sears catalog, if anybody remembers that. And it was a really awful guitar. And then he also purchased this guitar course off of the TV called the Quick Pick and Fun Strum at Home Guitar Course. And it was a, uh, a box of four albums that started you off from just learning how to tune guitar, the names of the strings, uh, teaching you chords, little things like that. So he worked on this thing for about three weeks and he gave up. And that was my opening. Here was my opening. Like, 
I have an opportunity right now to outdo my older brother in something. Because there's always that competitiveness. And when you're the youngest of five, you're always on the short end of the stick. You're getting your ass whooped. You know, you're especially when there's a seven year difference between, you know, myself and my next older brother and twenty years between myself and my oldest brother. So, you know, I, I no matter what the game is, I'm losing. So <laughs> You know what I mean? So, as it turns out, I saw this as an opportunity to uh, to do something that he couldn't. And it just, from the moment I picked it up, uh, all the bloody fingers, tips, and calluses and everything like that, uh, it was, I knew it was something that, that not only I wanted to do, but I needed to do. And it immediately became a form of expression for me that I hadn't otherwise had. Uh, I was never like a, a real outgoing kid, and, and the older I get, the more introverted, the more introverted I became. More unto myself, I found it more and more difficult to express myself. Uh, so I would mask that with like being the goofy guy and practical joker and things like that. But I inside, I was a pretty like I was a pretty. I had a great childhood, don't get me wrong, but I was like a pretty lonely kid because I didn't know how to express myself, how I felt. And all of a sudden, this thing is here, and I'm figuring it out. And that's what it's been my whole life. It's been my tool to express my innermost feelings uh, on every level. And... It's sort of serendipitous. It just a chain of events occurred, and and I went from being wanting to be an all star baseball pitcher to wanting to be Ace Freely uh, or Joe Perry, or you know, it was on and on. Now, when uh, when you started playing, did you did you know you were good? I mean, like, like sometimes you do something in like baseball, you know, you pick it up if you're a pitcher. You know, you're going to be good or you're going to suck. I mean, you can get worked on, but there's that natural talent. And like anything, with anything of creativity, you know, you're good or you suck, but you can cultivate it. But when you started playing, did you know you were good? I mean, did you sit there and go, no, I know you wanted to do it and it was your expression, but did you sit there and go, man, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at this? No, I thought I was terrible. Uh, and luckily for me, I lived down the street from a guy who had been playing guitar for a couple years, uh, John Bon Jovi. And so I sat down with him and he taught me some stuff and I picked up on it really quick. And he's the one that suggested me, he's like, you might have something here, dude. And, and why don't you go to the guy who teaches me across the street, a guy who became both of our mentors, a guy by the name of Al Paranello. And, I spent because I was so I was so painfully shy. Um, I spent days upon days walking back and forth in front of his house until his wife thought I was a stalker and finally said, "Can I help you, little boy?" Now I'm about 15 at the time, and I took me a minute, and I'm like, "Well, I'm friends with John, and he suggested that." your husband, Mr. Paranello, maybe could give me guitar lessons. And so he's sure, of course. So I took lessons from Al for about six months and he's like, I can't teach you anymore, man. You're like, you've, you're picking this stuff up pretty quick and you just need to do this on your own now. And that's what I did. And I started learning other people's guitar solos and learning how to write songs and how they were constructed. And it just was all encompassing. And the great thing about when you first start playing the first year or so is that you improve by leaps and bounds because it's all new. It's undiscovered territory. So you just, everything is brand new. Uh, and so you're exponentially accelerated. Uh, and then it slows down a little bit as you go on. But the love of it is what keeps you there. And it just still, uh, the time that I have alone with my guitar uh, 
are some of the most satisfying moments. Some of the most frustrating moments too, mind you. But that's the beauty of creating is that you have to get through the bad to get through the good. And for me, that's the case. Like I have to go through uh, a lot of bad, a lot of bad playing, a lot of bad songwriting uh, to get to something that uh, the band might think is, you know, Rachel and I agree on that. Yeah, this is good. And then we take it from there. Now, in your early eight, when you were early, you were originally in Bon Jovi, right? Yeah, for for like eight shows. So, so what was that like? Was it was it because they were were they be, were they getting hot at the time, and it was a good experience for you just to play to a good crowd? Well, what had happened was he had won a uh, he didn't have a band. He had been working at the Power Station Recording Studio, recorded Runaway, with a bunch of studio musicians and submitted it to an old radio station called Q104, uh, WAPP, not Q104, uh, WAPP, the Apple, 104.3, eventually became Q104. And they had like a homegrown contest uh, for local bands to submit their original material, one song, and the winner of that would play a bunch of radio-sponsored shows. And it was a big deal in, in, in New York, and he won. And he doesn't have a band. <laughs> so he had played with David Bryan, keyboard player, in a band in high school. So he had that area of it taken over. He called me up and said, you know, I won the contest. And again, we're like best buds. We've known each other since I was you know, 10 years old. And he called me up and he goes, you know, I got to play some shows. You want, Can you help me put some people together, go out and do some shows? And it was like never a promise, like oh, this is this is the band that we're going to go tour. And it was like we just can you help me put some shows? I'll put some guys together so we could go do some shows. I knew Alec, the bass player, from uh, uh, playing in the clubs in New Jersey. I was playing in clubs underage. He was in a band that I loved. Uh, knew some of the same people, so we became friends. And asked him if he was into it, and he said sure. And then he said, well, you guys got a drummer. And uh, John was like, no. And he's like, well, I know this guy, Tico Torres, that plays in a band called Frankie and the Knockouts. And he might be interested in doing this. And that was it. It was really that simple. And we went out and did some shows. Uh, I think eight shows, maybe, somewhere around there. And, again, it was never like, this is Bon Jovi. And you're in my, it was never, it was just John Bon Jovi, you know. Uh, and we went and did those shows. And in the meantime, I'm working at a nightclub that we would rehearse in. Because uh, it had a, a stage in the back, uh, like a venue. And we would be uh, rehearsing back there. And then during the weekends, in the front of the club, it was like a small stage and Richie Sambora would be playing up there in like a cover band. And it was great. And Richie was amazing. And we became friends and he was friends with Alec. So Alec introduced him to John and they hit it off immediately. And then uh, one day John just said to me, you know, I think I'm going to go down this road with Richie. And I'm like, absolutely. I go, that you guys are like, you know, plant and page. It was obvious. It was obvious. I was not, I was not John's uh, Keith Richards, if you will. Richie, definitely. And so there was no hard feelings or I was never uh, butthurt about it or anything like that. Uh, it, it was never, there was never this notion that this thing was going to continue on and on and on. And like all of a sudden, I was fired or something like that. It was it, that wasn't the case at all. Um, and I think, you know, it was like it was destined that I was going to start my own band anyway. I was more uh, influenced by the new wave of British heavy metal and the Van Halens of the world and Aerosmith and bands like that. I leaned more towards the heavier side, whereas John leaned more towards the pop rock side, and so. You know, like I said, it was never like this thing like we've got a partnership and oh, no, 
you're forsaking me. You know, nothing like that at all. Uh, now, you, you get Skid Row together and start playing, you know. And tell me about the first album. You know, because it's something that, you know, you, you seem like you were writing songs at a young age. You'd said, you know, you'd started writing and when you were in your room. And, and from that, when you started writing to when you got to the writing for that first album, how had your writing process changed? I had always written on my own. And, I mean, I wrote good stuff, I guess. Um, but it was always missing something whether it was the, the great knock it out of the ballpark lyric or the great hook or the sometimes the great riff. Um, it was always missing something. Cut to meeting Rachel in the music store and looking at that guy and going, that guy is a rock star. I've got to get to know him. And, and that was the one thing I never had a problem, as shy as they may have been, when it came to uh, networking. I never had a problem introducing myself to somebody and and in that way. It was other social interactions where I shied away from. But that was an easy thing for me. So I introduced myself. Dropped every name that I had in the book and said, yeah, I like I'm, I'm this guitar player and blah, blah, blah. And I'm friends with this guy and I know this guy from this record label, which I did. But I, I was just dropping names to impress him. And we became friends really quick, got along really well. And then he had a band. I had a band. Uh, we decided, let's start writing together, see what happens. And lo and behold, we started seeing things in each other that we didn't possess. So he would do certain things better than me and, and conversely. And so as we're writing, we're filling these gaps together we're like wow man we might have something here so i had a group of guys up in uh new brunswick new jersey we were rehearsing at a place called the rubber room i was like man why don't you come up and just jam and you know see what happens and and he like i said he had his band in tom's river that were doing shows so he came up and started jamming and we started working on some of these songs and the more we were working on these songs, the more we realized that we needed to put a band together. Um, and so that's what we did. And we started, uh, he kind of put his thing on the side and we took what we had up in New Brunswick and started replacing everybody. Uh, replacing, uh, we went in to do demos first, realized our guitar player wasn't going to cut it. So that was the first person that had to go, and he had played and was playing in a band with Scotty. So we auditioned some guitar players and brought Scotty in, and Scotty was amazing. And initially, Scotty was like, "Man, I'll just play rhythm guitar." And we were, I especially was like, "You're too good <laughs> to just be playing rhythm guitar." I would be a fool if I was that egotistical that only I would play the solos. I'd be a fool. And I'm thankful that my ego didn't suggest that. Um, and then uh, when we went to do the demos, the day of the that we were the day of the night that we were supposed to go to Philly to do the demos, um, a drummer got thrown in jail for attempted murder. <laughs> yep. Oh, so so John, as gracious as he was, called up Tico. And Tico, being the pro that he is, came in and knocked out three songs in like an hour. Just amazing. So then we knew we had to get a drummer. And we re uh, we auditioned a bunch of drummers. Turns out that Rob Afuso was friends with, with David Bryan from Bon Jovi. So he came in and played great. And so he was in a band. And we had a different singer. Uh, so now we're writing all the songs for the first record. Uh, demoing them. We've got what would be most of the record written. Didn't know it at that point. We we wrote, you know, I don't know, 20-some songs maybe. Uh, but within that, those 20 songs uh, existed 95% of the record. 
Uh, so we were asked to go out to do a few shows at the beginning of the Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet tour. And we went out and did three shows. And it was amazing to get and play in an arena. We had never played in an arena before. And it was in uh, three shows in Pennsylvania. And we were on top of the world. Doc McGee, who was managing Bon Jovi at the time, came in to our dressing room and, uh, and said to Rachel and I, uh, or Rachel and me, he said, um, I love the songs. I love the attitude. But you need a new singer. And we were crushed. Because his opinion was gold. And he goes, if you guys want to do this, like for real, we need a new singer. So it took us roughly nine months of endless auditions uh, until we finally, uh, Sebastian was suggested to us by uh, a friend of ours and a photographer friend of ours. Uh, Sebastian was singing in a band out of Detroit called Madame X and he was invited to photographer Mark Weiss's wedding and he got up and sang at the wedding uh, turns out that John's parents were there and again like I'm part of that family they live right up the street you know John's mom and dad used to cook me dinner all the time and uh, I was just I was part of the family um, and so they told Sebastian about, you know, this band, Skid Row, that needed a singer. Uh, Mark Weiss reiterated that along with a friend of theirs, this guy Dave Feld. And so we were able to get a demo of four songs, uh, which included 18 to Life, Youth Got Wild, Rattlesnake Shake, and I forget what else, and got it up to Toronto. He got the demo, and we flew him down to New Jersey and went straight from the airport uh, to a club called Mingles on Route 35 in Old Bridge and proceeded to get ridiculously hammered. But luckily for us, we kind of owned the club. Like the owners of the club were very close with us and they let us do whatever we wanted. So we went, there was two, two uh, areas. One was a big room upstairs, which held like 1,500 people. And then there was a room downstairs held like 200 people. And there was a band playing downstairs. and uh, We asked him if we could get up on stage and play. And so that was the first time Sebastian had played with us. Uh, and we were terrible. Uh, we were hammered and terrible. But <laughs> it felt like a band. And so we announced. Because we had, we had a following in the area. A really good following. A strong following. With our old singer. Um. And so when we were gone for nine months, it was like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Skid Row? And, uh, we came out and, and you know, we were a band all of a sudden. And uh, we announced that night that this is our new singer and so on and so forth. And then from there, things really ramped up. We started playing a lot of shows uh, and, and built up an even more of a, of a following. And... Uh, started uh, attracting the attention of uh, people from various record labels. And, and then Doc McGee basically just came in and said, okay, I'm managing you guys. And we were like, okay. And from that point on, it was, it was, it was for real. Uh, now, it, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you, you know, it was real and you, you get your album out. Tell me, tell me about the song "18 in Life." There's always like different stories of what it's about. What's what's the what's the what's the scoop behind it? Well, it started out. The idea started out about being my about my brother Rick, who was went to Vietnam. He was kind of the guy that raised me, um, and I wanted to tell the story about him going to Vietnam and, and coming back and being a different person. And we couldn't get it. We just couldn't get it. Uh, and at the very beginning, I just had Ricky was a young boy out of heart of gold. And we decided, Rachel and I said, okay, we're not getting anywhere with this. This isn't turning out. Let's just create a different story. 
And so that story kind of evolved from that first line. We changed gold to stone. And then we decided to make it this story just about these two friends who had a tragic ending by accident. Uh, too much to drink, too much, you know, rough childhood, uh, which we had all had some experience with, uh, dancing uh, too close to the edge. And, and so we created a fictional story that started out based on something factual. Now, you know, you said, you know, it was fictional based on factional, but then there was something that was, you know, as you said, the hard growing up. Is that hard to write something like that? Like when it's fictional, but there's some of you in it. Is it easier to write a song when it's like that? Or is it easier just to write a song that's completely away from the situation? All the songs to me, I take all the songs personally. Like all the songs we've written, I take personally, which is a blessing and a curse. Uh, I become very protective of it. And sometimes that gets in the way of better judgment as far as if something is good or not. Like if I write something and I really, really believe in it, I will protect that. But if I take a step back, I might realize that it's really not that good. <laughs> that's that's the problem. And luckily, uh, I have a, a guy who's a partner that's honest with me and I'm honest with him. And we're able to keep uh, checks and balances on each other. So, to your question, I don't know if any of it's any easier. Um, I think the trick is just to be just to be as honest as possible. And with that, you have to be really selfish because songwriting is a selfish act. You're doing it for yourself first. You're doing it to express something that you need to express. And whatever whatever shape or form that comes out in, that's still you expressing something that exists within you. So it's got to be genuine. And it's always been that way with us. Uh, we call each other out when on, on any sort of BS. And, um, and sometimes you get caught in something. Um, you, you might, you know, you might have uh, inconspicuously lifted something from, you know, a certain pop song or something like that that's stuck in your head. And it's like, wait a second, that's that. Okay, whoops, you know. And so you just gotta, you gotta, and then you gotta go back and like, wait a second, like it's. You have to have influences. We all have influences. We're all inspired. Uh, and we all uh, learned our craft by dissecting other people's great music. At least that's how I learned. How to construct a song, I learned by deconstructing everybody else's. Uh, and figuring out what they were doing. How different chords worked with one another. And how different melodies worked with, one, uh, with the chord changes and chord structures. That's fun to find it. All of a sudden, you click on something, and it's like, whoa, that works amazing. <laughs> now, now, you're writing the songs, and it's a long process, and then you start hearing yourself on the radio. And I always like to ask people, do you remember the first time, because Rachel said he was in New York and something, and I've had people say, oh, I was driving in L.A. down the 405. Do you remember the first time you heard a Skid Row song on the radio? Well, Eddie Trunk used to have a, a radio station he worked at called WDHA in North Jersey. And he used to play our demos. So that kind of was the first time that I ever heard our music on the radio. And there was uh, the one memory that sticks out to me from something like that is the first time seeing our video on MTV. And that was like, I believe... I was in summers on the beach in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, early on the first week of February. We were playing that club, and it was during the afternoon, 
and I believe we were told they were playing it at such and such a time. So we had the MTV on in the venue itself, in the club, and it came on, and it was like, wow. Holy crap, man. Like, that's us. Holy crap. It was otherworldly. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was so taken aback by by it that we had set a goal for ourselves. Set a lot of goals for ourselves. But we were achieving it. Like, it was really happening. Well, you'd set those goals and it was happening, and you're still young guys. How do you keep your head in one place when, you know, it's it's rock and roll? You know, it's, uh, you guys are blowing up. You're on TV. You got a great look. How do you, how do you keep yourself together? I mean, it must be so hard. I mean, as you're older, I can understand. But when you're young, we're all invincible. You know, we're all like, oh, yeah, anything. You know, we can do this. I can do this. What was it like as you guys were going, escalating up? What kept you in check? And did you ever just sort of start going off the deep end or just getting into your own ego? I was raised in a lower middle class blue collar family that taught me to uh, appreciate everything in life. That nothing is a given. Uh, it's not a birthright. It's a privilege. Uh, and that's has still stuck with me to this day. Um, what we get to do for a living, playing music and, and for a living and seeing the world, it's a privilege. It's an honor. Uh, that, that never changed. That, that was always instilled in me. So I always had that mindset uh, throughout it all, through the ups and the downs. And But we're also in a cocoon. You know, we're traveling in a bus with 12, 13 people uh, going from each venue to each venue, each town, each club. And so we understand that something's happening, but we're not, we don't understand how big or small it is. Like, we understand we're selling records. But that's kind of just numbers on the paper. We're not, we're not going out into the, into the public. We're traveling, playing shows, traveling, playing shows, traveling, playing shows. I didn't get a real grasp of it until Christmas of 89. I went to a mall by my mom's house to Christmas shop with one of my best buddies. And someone recognized me. And then all of a sudden more people recognized me. And before we knew what was happening, we were surrounded by about 300 people. And I had no idea. I had no idea whatsoever. And I'm signing as many autographs as I can, but we're starting to get, starting to get a little scary. It's the, the crowd is coming in and, and they had to have some you know mall cops <laughs> escort us out through the back of the of the you know down the back hallways behind the stores and that was the first real idea that I was like oh my gosh like I can't go to the mall that's crazy because I again I had no idea I was just going as as I always did maybe a few people I thought Certainly not 300 people. It was crazy. As you're getting bigger and bigger, and you come out the second album, and you know, and that does well, and then the third album is critically acclaimed. But you know, you guys eventually, you know, out of falling out or whatever happened. What happened? Like, was it just something that was too, like the old saying, too much, too young? Like it just hit too fast because you guys, the first. I always think whenever there's a first album that's just sells a ton and there's hits on it it must put the pressure on each other. And when there's pressure, sometimes we get in pissy moods. And I can imagine if you're on the bus and you have this pressure, you know, coming out with something good again. When did you guys start getting mad at each other, getting in each other's throats? Well, I think the egos started ramping up on, on the probably during the, our second tour on the first album. Uh, maybe, yeah, like, uh, we went to Europe 
to tour with Motley Crue, and you could see some egos starting to get bloated. Um, and then the more success we had, I think those egos got even more bloated. Um, and then all of a sudden, you start, because you're spending so much time with each other. Uh, you're touring for, uh, you know, first our first bunch of tours all told lasted 17 months. And we took a little bit of time off, wrote the record and, and went and recorded Slave to the Grind. And then we toured for what would be 22 months. So I think at the end of Slave to the Grind, we were absolutely sick and tired of each other. Um, but we knew that we had to somehow pull it together for another record. But it took a lot to do that. And I think we were... We were not enjoying being in each other's company. Uh, not Rachel and I. Uh, not Rachel and I and Scotty, for that matter. Uh, it was just there seemed to be, you know, as always happens, uh, a problem with the with the singer, and so we were really drifting in in separate directions. Uh, and so when we were putting slave to the grind to uh, not slave to the grind a uh, subhuman race together we were a really disjointed band uh we did the best that we could at that particular moment in our career and when we were finally done touring on that record 1996 uh we did a monsters of rock tour with iron maiden and motorhead and uh, biohazard in south america and when we got off the plane back home in New York, we went our separate ways and didn't speak to each other at all. Like at all. Uh, we were done. We were done. Wasn't official yet, but it would take about four months before, uh, and a big blow up with, with, uh, with Sebastian and I, uh, what, what was the blow up? The blow up was, None of us had spoken with each other in, since that since August. Um, there was nothing but communications via fax at that time, <laughs> and they were horrific. Like just, he would send off these horrible, horrible, demeaning uh, missives to our management to me. I don't think he had Rachel's number, so I don't think he got to him. But um, they were horrible. Very divisive, uh, mean-spirited, demeaning. And so uh, in December, we had got an offer to play New Year's Eve with Kiss, uh, which had been all of our dreams. But to be quite frank Rachel and I didn't have the heart to do it we felt that it would be completely disingenuous to get on a stage with this person that had been doing nothing but uh, cussing us out putting us down and and, uh, just didn't want any part of it as much as it broke our hearts because of course we wanted to do it. But it, what we had at that point was irreparable. And I couldn't even imagine getting on stage with everybody else. Nor could Rachel. And then the end came around Christmas when I got, I had my family over for like a Christmas dinner. Uh, group, big group of people. And uh, the phone rang. I let it go to voicemail, and the speaker was up, and it was Sebastian, and he just called me every name in the book, uh, and my family is dumbfounded by this, and I remember my mother look at me and going, "Is everything okay?" I'm like, "It will be," um, and he went off. And I saved that message, and I waited for my family to leave. 
And I called him back. I said, I got your message. I'll never play in a band with you again. And that was it. Called up Doc McGee and Rachel and said, that's it. And I told him what happened. I go, I'm done. And I'll never play in a band with him again. And, you know, Rachel and I owned the name of the band, so we were in complete control of that. That was never an issue. We started the band. Um, wrote 90% of the song. So, you know, it was sad that it had come to that. Uh, but you know what's interesting is that uh, as life would have it in, in 2000 we got to tour with Kiss on their farewell tour so you know it's like for you know somehow it works itself out how how did you rebound from that moment though you know you guys were done and you knew you were never going to play with Sebastian and once again as you said you own the name you wrote all the songs so basically Sebastian's an employee when you, how do you keep your shit? I wouldn't say that. I don't think that's fair to say. Okay. We were, we were a band. We were definitely a band. I, I, I would be, that would be wrong to say that, uh, him, Scotty or Rob were employees. Okay. Uh, We were, we were a band. So you pull the band back together. How do you keep your head on straight? Because you were huge and then you have this falling out and it's, you know, it's something you worked for. I mean, you gave your, you know, even though you're young guys, you get toured. You just said for like 17 months and then 22 months. I mean, you busted your ass. How do you get back on the grindstone, man? How do you sit there after all this and go, I got to do this? I mean, you, you had to deal with a little bit of depression after all this happened. Oh, my God. A little bit? A lot. Um, you got to take a step away from it for a while. Uh, or maybe you don't, but we did. You know, Rachel, Scotty, and, and and I took a step away. We just uh, had to get away from it. Uh, had to rebuild our friendships as well. Because uh, they had taken a beating in the midst of everything. Well, everybody's did. Um, but, you know, Rachel and I had been so close. Uh, Rachel and Scotty had been so close. I and Scotty had been, the three of us. Very, very close. And so we had to re- we had to take some time away from each other in order to let the dust settle and realize that the three of us loved playing with one another and that on some way or some level we- and so we formed like a like a side band called Ozone Monday and went out and did wrote a bunch of songs for that and that was more a more commercial rock thing you know it was fun it was fun to do. Uh, played a bunch of clubs in, in New Jersey and New York and uh, never toured really. Did some shows with Motley Crue and, uh, in the in local area. And it was fun. It was a great release from what we had been doing with Skid Row. It was, a, it was really good for us to do. And then after a while, we were like, you know what? We own the name Skid Row. We love those songs that we wrote. Let's, you know, let's see if we can find some guys to to do this again on some level. Uh, and so we found uh, Johnny Solinger out of Texas. Uh, found a guy by the name of Charlie Mills who came into the band for a little while and played drums. And next thing you know, we're getting an offer to open up for Kiss on their, you know, in their 2001st farewell tour. Uh, and so we did it. And all, all of a sudden, we're back on the road again. Uh, no record, you know, nothing like that. We only had uh, about a month to prepare for for the tour, uh, which is, you know, pretty interesting to go from, you know, not having a band at all to going, wow, we're going to really do this again. And so we've been doing it ever since, uh, on our own terms, for better or for worse. Um, and one of the things about it, though, is you just you can't lament the past. I'm so proud of our history. I'm so proud of everything we accomplished from day one to where we're at now. I'm, I'm thankful to everybody that, that we've played with. Uh, you know, 
the making of those first records with the original band guys, I have fond memories. Yeah, it was hard. The breakup was hard. It hurt. There's certain parts of it that kind of still hurt. But the main thing for me was I was always thankful for it. I was thankful for this, the highs uh, and understanding of the lows and knowing that, that nothing is a given in life. Uh, you know, success is not a birthright. You know, it's, like I said earlier, it's a privilege now, to be able to do this. You're, you're, you're working on the music, new music. What is it like now? How, how have you been during the pandemic? Have you, has your creativity, I'm sure you practice guitar a lot, but you probably seem like you always practice. Has your creativity flourished? Because I've talked to some people in the beginning, they didn't know, like, oh, you know, this might only last for a month. And they were you know, getting ready for the road. And then six months into it, they really start getting creative. How has it been for you? To be quite honest, it's been rough. Like, I haven't come up with a really good idea in a long time. <laughs> and I know, I'm just being honest. I've come up with ideas, uh, a lot of ideas, just none of them where I think, and I may be wrong, I hope I'm wrong, but the, nothing that I think stands out. A few here and there. I'm starting just this past, like, week or so to, to, to see some light. And I don't know why that is. I've gone through periods of time in my life where I just had writer's block, where it was just, there was nothing. And it's not to that extent. I mean, I come up with stuff, but I truly wish I was coming up with a lot more. Uh, I play guitar all the time. It's awesome just to sit and play. Uh, but it's frustrating when, when, you're really, really pushing to come up with stuff. And it's just not happening. But lo and behold, in the last week or so, things are opening up a little. And it's like songwriting. It's like that window inside of you needs to be open for the stuff to come through. It's kind of the way I look at it. Your soul has to be open. And for whatever reason, I mean, this this whole pandemic and the, the whole uh, political nature of our society over the course of the last well, four years, but the course of the last year, especially, has been really, really rough. The divisiveness that we've gone through, and uh, the loss of life, and uh, uh, the loss of respect for each other, and uh, just—it's been sad to look at. Uh, it's really tough at times to keep your faith in humanity, uh, but I still do. And I still believe that there is a really an awful lot of good out there. Um, and I think that we'll find our way through this divisiveness. And I think that we'll, you know, I, I believe in unity. I always have. Uh, I believe in community. Uh, it's why I love playing live so much. It's, it's a community of people coming together. Uh, where there, at least at our shows, there are no politics. There is no divisiveness. We're brothers and sisters enjoying this moment together. Like, that's our goal. I was going to say that, you know, live music is such a unifier. You know, you never see someone go to a concert, especially, you know, you know, as your band's been along around time, so your fans are older. You never, you never see someone go to a concert and get... Like pissed off. Like I used to always go to concerts in Camden at the uh, pavilion outside. Yeah, and yeah. and you'd go, and then I would go to different concerts with guests of mine. Would get me on the list, and I would go with a friend, and and no one's ever pissed off when it's music. It's always it's unifying, and I think once you know we get the vaccine and live music starts happening, we're gonna see a lot of angst get away because everyone I know misses live music you see it on facebook all the time they're like oh my god i miss live music what is it for you the person that's how much do you miss it because you supply that you supply that say we say peacemaker you supply that oh i miss that interaction so much uh to me i still get taken aback when I look out in an audience and they're singing one of our lyrics back to us. Like that's just to me is the most 
incredible thing that something that I was a part of has touched these people. Um, that never gets lost on me at all. None of us, for that matter. And the amount of joy I have when we play with the guys that I'm playing with and the, the camaraderie that is is that we share between ourselves and then that permeates to the audience uh, it's not phony it's for real and the interaction that we have with our audience to me is like there might be 22 hours of the day outside of that but those two hours right there are are the best thing that could happen to me um because there's such a great give and take and to see to be a part of a joyous experience with a group of people and having there be uh no angst and no divisiveness and and everybody is in that moment together that's a great thing you know when it's nothing but camaraderie and love to me you know it's, it's just a great thing it's very 60s-ish of me but uh it's true <laughs> well that's awesome man i, I want to thank you for taking the time i'm a big fan and you're a fellow jersey guy and uh I can't wait till you guys, you know, get back out there again. I want to come check you out. And I just, I can't wait to see live music. And, and you guys do do such a, do such a service. And I don't think, you know, people, they, I, I, I've never taken music for granted. I don't think anyone does. But, you know, you go to concerts, you go to 10 concerts in the summer, and it's second nature. And then when it's gone, it's like, holy crap. You know, it's like you sit yeah. there and you go, I, wait, I, I mean, I had tickets to concerts that I couldn't go to. You know, I was yeah. like, I was like, oh yeah. man, you know. And so, so thank you. And uh, now, now your guitar. Where, where do people find more info about the about the the Snake Sabo guitar? Uh, on the Kramer Guitars US website. Uh, and I mean, we've been posting like crazy about it too. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was released uh, two days ago and. You know, well, hopefully everything will go great. I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, I hope people like it. Uh, I, once we get back on the road, I'm going to be playing it every night. So, uh, you know, that can't come soon enough. Well, that's so, awesome. Now, I now, want to thank you, Coop, for taking the time out to speak with me, man. I really do appreciate now, it. Now, what's your Twitter? It's at Snake Sabo? Yep. At Snake Sabo, people, the website is uh, skidrow.com. Uh, yep. Great little website. So people well, see like uh, Instagram Snake Sabo there too, or Snake Sabo sixteen. Just Google uh, Snake Sabo and say social media, and we'll find yeah. it. And yeah, you'll find it easy. So follow, follow us. Go listen to some Skid Row to, uh, next time. You know, when you hear this episode, go listen to some Skid Row. Go listen to my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find over eight hundred and thirty episodes. Email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Twitter at CooperTalk. Instagram at CooperTalk1. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.